0: Introductions to, introductions to Vedanta texts by Shri Shri Sachidhananda Indra Saraswati Swamiji, Holy Narasipura, Karnataka, India. In this lecture series, we have already seen 19 sessions. Today's is the 20th session. Om um, Shri Gurubhyo Namaha Harihi Om Shri Ganesha Janamaha Dr. Krishnamurti Shastri Dambay Puna Chabantwala Thalapudakshin Karnataka Bharata. The alleged influence of the Madhyamika on Vedanta. This is a topic now. Professor T. R. V. Murti, the author of the Central Philosophy of Buddhism, is the second of the two school scholars I have alluded to above. He views the matter from a totally different standpoint. He hesitates to decide the question once for all and suspects a possible influence of the Madhyamika on the development of Vedanta and strengthens his opinion by... Remarking that we have undeniable evidence of Madhyamika and Yogachara inference in the Mandukya Karikas. With regard to the first three chapters, however, he notes that nothing is said to which any orthodox Vedantin could take exception as regards language and logical content. At the same time, he observes that no Vedanta writer has quoted from the fourth chapter while verses are quoted from the first three. Bhava Viveka and uh, Shantara, uh, Shantarakshita have also quoted in their exposition of upanishada school from this part alone. The professor depends almost entirely on Professor V. Bhattacharya for the interpretation of book 4. His own surmise is that it can be considered as an attempt to synthesize the two schools of Mahayana. On the internal evidence alone, we may treat the Alata Shanti Prakarna of the mandukya Karikas as an independent work written most probably by a Buddhist. Having cut the guardian knot in this manner, the professor proceeds to formulate his final position. Thus, it is our contention that there could not be acceptance of any doctrinal content by either side from the either side from the other, as each had a totally different background of tradition and conception of reality. Consistent with the above contention, we can only expect the Vedantin to have profited by the technique or method of the Madhyamika. We may readily concur (coughs) with the professor when he says that Gaudapada has profited by the technique or even the method of Madhyamika. But the question is to what extent exactly did either of these items profit that writer? Was he wholly indebted to the Buddhist? What were the circumstances that drove this profound thinker on Vedanta to seek assistance from sources professedly of an alien tradition? Was there nothing in the, in his own tradition to look to in this matter? These questions, I think, must be answered satisfactorily first before we jump to conclusions based mostly on conjectures. Conjectures. Third one. Free, uh, that is pre-Gaudapada Vedanta, as the precursor of absolutism. Professor Murthy admits that if the independence of the books, especially of Book Four, were accepted, it alters our contention with regard to the alleged borrowing. We have no direct textual uh, evidence of that. Evidence for that, we can only presume and conjecture. From the acknowledged priority of the madhyamika and yogachara uh, advayavada to the advaita of gaudapada and uh, shankara and from the absence of such a trend in their predecessors we have seen that we could not agree with those who consider all the four books to be independent treatises the first three chapters may be left out of consideration for our present purpose since the professor is convinced that they are vedantic It is only on the evidence of book 4, therefore, that we have to examine the nature and extent of the Madhyamika influence on Gaudapada. Whether or not it is Gaudapada's work is just the moot point here, the conjecture that it may be the work of a Buddhist we shall pass over, for we have no positive evidence for that except that no Vedantic writer is found to have quoted from it. But an argument from silence of this nature cuts both ways, for no Buddhist writer has appealed to or even made a passing reference to it as a buddhistic work either that gaudapada has uh, discussed nothing directly of the vedanta even if true without any qualification is not to the point either for Shankara and his followers they have all along been contending that this chapter is mainly for reducing an indirect proof of the Vedantic position emerging out of the internal differences differences on crucial points of vital importance among the scholars, not subscribing to the conclusions of Advaita. We shall therefore assume that the work is from that author's pen and try to investigate how far and for what reasons he has taken over the technique and method of the Madhyamika To take up the second point first. Professor Murthy observes that pre Gaudapada Shankara Vedanta is ekatma Vada, monism. It is not Advaita, absolutism. It did not formulate a theory of appearance, Vivartavada. No need was felt to draw the distinction between the Paramartha and the Yavaharika or the texts into Para and Apara. It is only with regard to such points that he suspects Madhyamika influence on the Vedantins. He, the Vedantin, had before him the Madhyamika distinction of Paramartha and samvritti uh, of texts into uh, nitartha and uh, Neyartha. He is reaching the real by the method of negating the unreal appearances, etc. The Madhyamika and the Yogachara also had a theory of illusion to account for the emergence of appearance. Knowledge of this turn in Buddhism must have sent the Vedantin Back to his own texts and enabled him to perceive the true meaning of the Upanishads in Advaitism. We shall take up these points one by one. We shall see first of all whether there was an unexpected revolution in Upanishad thought ushered in by Shankara and Gaudapada, or whether owing to its own inner dynamism, the Upanishadic tradition too was heading towards absolutism. The latter is proposed by the Professor just as a plausible hypothesis but dismissed as unworthy of consideration on the score of its impossibility. There was not much development in the Upanishada school. It produced a considerable amount of exegetical literature and evolved a mimamsa, but as regards originality and striking a new path, it remained stagnant and sluggish. But this appears to me to be rather a hasty conclusion. Sureshwaracharya in sabaradhana dikabhashi vartika especially in the sambandha vartika exhibits a number of monistic schools contending with one another for the first place in vedantic tradition not all of them were parinamavadin's teaching modification of brahman or schools teaching videha mukti liberation from after death in preference to jivan mukti or release in this life notable among these are schools which teach bheda vilaya one or prapancha vilaya dissolving the universe to attain unity of brahman second vasana nirodha or destruction of the haunting impression of the reality of the three states waking dream and sound sleep third one jnana vidhi or vedic injunction of knowledge fourth prasankhyana vidhi or injunction of continued practice of right knowledge supported by ratiocination in order to make the knowledge of the non-dual atman strong enough to resist avidya. Fifth, Sakshatkara jnana or continued practice of indirect knowledge gained through scripture in order to materialize it into realization. Some of these monistic schools are found to be taken up for refutation in Shankara's bhasya also. Can it be maintained in the face of this seething unrest among the followers of Upanishads that the absolutism of Gaudapada could not possibly have been the result of a gradual unfoldment from within the Upanishadic monistic teaching itself? Fourth one, absolutistic trend in Upanishads. Professor Murti asks, Pre-Gaudapada Shankara Vedanta is monistic, not Advaitic. How could it? suddenly take an absolutistic turn. We have seen that the emergence of absolutism was by no means uh, so sudden or unnaturally abrupt. There were a number of antecedent fermenting streams of thought tending towards it. But even in their absence, it is easy to see that absolutism need not have waited upon extraneous aid for its uh, appearance. There are ample signs of absolutism in Upanishads themselves. A shrewd eye like that of Gaudapada might very well discern this tendency in those ancient revelations which mostly commence with or culminate in rejecting all duality or difference in Brahman. Akayam Avranam mastna Viram Ishavasya Upanishad. Ashabdam Katak Yetadreshyamagrakyam Undap OpenShat, Tadachaya Mashari Malohitam Prashnopensha, Nantaf Pradjam Bah Pradjam Mandu Gopenshet, Adrishy Anatme, Anirupti, Anilayani, Abhayam Pratistam Vindate Tati OpenShirt, Y Kamevadi Yam Chandu Gopenshet, Apadagni Vikaro Namade Yam Chandu such a Adesho NETI NETI Such persistent denial of duality in Brahman, the only possible source of all, and declaration of all duality as apparent, should have been quite sufficient to suggest and persuade a reflective mind that absolutism is the goal of all sacred teaching. We may now turn round and put this question. The ancient Buddhistic canon mostly taught the Ephemeral nature of the universe and presented a rigorous chain of antecedents and consequences In all phenomena, how could the founder of the Mahayana system suddenly rise to the idea of uh, uh, Naishvabhavya or essenceless of things true, he had a number of uh, prajnaparamita works to guide him, but uh, They were mostly religious and mystical treatises with no philosophical flavor about them like Upanishads. Could we not suppose that the buddhistic denial of pluralistic phenomena and the tendency to trace them all to a dharma dhatu took its cue from Upanishads? Most of the eminent Mahayanistic philosophers, including Nagarjuna were Brahmins who had no doubt imbibed the Upanishadic teaching which reiterated the negation of the reality of the phenomenal world in no Uncertain terms. Would it be a very long jump to suppose that when they were converted to Buddhism, which uh, from its very inception denied Atman or Brahman, they naturally incorporated the rejection of the reality of phenomena into the new teaching with the due adaptation? I am not altogether alone in making this surmise. This is what Professor Dasgupta writes in his History of Indian Philosophy. I agree with the late Dr. S.C. Vidyabhusana in holding that both the Yogachara system and the system of Nagarjuna evolved from the Prajnaparamita. Nagarjuna's merit consisted in the dialectical form of his arguments in support of Shunyavada. But so far as the essentials of Shunyavada are concerned, I believe that the uh, philosophy of Tathagata philosophy of of and the philosophy of the Prajnaparamita contained no less. And with regard to the Tathagata philosophy itself, the professor remarks as follows This doctrine seems to be more in agreement with the view of an absolute, unchangeable reality as the ultimate truth than that of nihilistic idealism of uh, Lankavatara. Considering the fact that Ashwagosha was a learned Brahmin scholar in early life, it is easy to guess that there was much Upanishad influence on this interpretation. In this interpretation of Buddhism, which compares so favourably with the Vedanta as interpreted by Shankara, I do not mean to endorse or emphasise all that Professor Dasgupta has said here. But the conclusion seems irresistible that the early Sanskrita writers of Mahayana may have taken some hints from Upanishads in respect of holding the ideal or. Um, unreal nature of the universe. It does happen very often that the tables are turned in making guesses on insecure basis. But I do not like to be a partner in such games. On the whole, I perfectly agree with Professor Murthy in thinking that it is a matter of conjecture and presumption whether and to what extent there had been borrowing on either side. So, the next point is, fifth point, was there a school of Advaitic absolutism anterior to Gaudapada? This we shall continue in the next session. So, we are ending this 20th session in Introduction to Vedanta Text by Sri Sri Satchidanandendra, Saraswati Swamiji. Hare Rama, holy, uh, salutes to his holy uh, feet. Sarvejana, tat ondatsat, brahmarpa pramast.